Welcome to the New America NYC podcast. This event was recorded on February 3rd, 2016, and is titled The United States of Jihad, Investigating America's Homegrown Terrorists, and features Peter Bergen, Vice President of New America and Director of New America's International Security Program, and author of The United States of Jihad, and Karen Greenberg, Director of the Center on National Security at Fordham University School of Law, and author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days. And the modernism has a theory about the world we live in and also history and also the future. And what is that future? The future is Taliban-style theocracies from Indonesia to Morocco. And just like communism and Nazism, that nirvana or utopia, it can only be attained if only we could get rid of a few people that were standing in the way. So for the, for the Nazis, it was the Jews, the gypsies, homosexuals, and you know, lesser, supposedly lesser Slavic races, like the Poles. For the communists, it was counter-revolutionaries. For people like bin Laden, it's the Jews, Israel, the United States, Arab regimes that don't uh, comport to his Taliban-style dream. Uh, and, and, and I think the way that we've seen you know, ISIS is really just a continuation of bin Ladenism. I mean, it's, a, it's the latest iteration of the set of ideas. I mean, the difference between bin Laden and ISIS is that bin Laden saw the caliphate as something that was some, somewhat out there in the future, and that ISIS has claimed to establish it. But it's basically the same set of ideas. And so, you know, bin Ladenism may not be the, the right way of calling this, but it just, I thought that we needed a way, we needed to explain have a, a, a shorthand to explain this ideology, which unfortunately some people in this country have signed up to, not in large numbers, uh, and obviously larger numbers of people around the world. So that, that was kind of why I, I call it bin Ladenism, because he was the person who put these ideas out there. And in fact, interestingly, you know, Al-Qaeda and ISIS are in a dispute right now. But if you look at ISIS's propaganda, bin Laden remains you know, a revered figure. Um, and so I think, you know, it's Bin Laden who propagated these ideas around the world. No, I think that's a really good point. And I think that ISIS sees itself as the heir of Bin Ladenism and would distinguish itself from current day Al-Qaeda in that way, in part with the claim of land, you know, the, the claim of a, a caliphate that's present and has to do with land acquisition and, and in addition to everything else. So I think it's really, I think it's really smart. I think it's one of the, the good takeaways of the book that, that this is what the ISIS that we're learning about really is, that this is bin Laden's legacy. Um, along those lines, can you talk a little bit about Alaki and the, the, the way you see him, who he is, mm. and the way you see him playing a role? I had in a huge this... fight with my editor about Alaki. Oh, we're not going to fight. No, 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 not with you, with my editor, <laughs> who is okay. a wonderful person, Rachel Clayman. I did a spectacular job editing the book with uh, Megan Hauser at Crown. But I begin the second chapter by saying, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the months after 9-11, Anwar Alauki was feeling particularly horny. Yeah. And she, so, she said, that's really not, you know, this is not the way to begin. But I felt it was important to point out that Anwar Alauki, who was a cleric, married, was visiting prostitutes on a regular basis in the weeks after 9-11. And in fact, we know in great detail, some of the, you know, the detail is actually now publicly available because the FBI was tracking him. Um, and Anwar Olaki was, a, was somebody who led double, various kinds of double lives. So he's a married cleric, 
who's visiting prostitutes literally weekly yeah. and dropping $300 or $400 for these, for these assignations. At the same time, he's presenting himself to the Pentagon and others, but the Pentagon invited him to come and speak after 9-11 as a sort of moderate voice of Islam. And you know, it's unclear when he became an Al-Qaeda sympathizer. Was it when he was imprisoned in Yemen in 2006? Was it before 9-11 when he was meeting with two of the hijackers in San Diego? <coughs> Uh, I mean, and I, I don't think we can settle that. Uh, but the point is, is that Anwar Awlaki, who was born in New Mexico, uh, as American as anybody in this room, went on to become a leader of Al-Qaeda in Yemen. And at the same time, the most important cleric in the English-speaking world. And obviously, he's, and if you look at the cases in the United States, his lectures tend to show up. And why, you know, the reason that he was influential is he could speak in colloquial English. I mean, he grew up in the States. So, you know, one of the, one of the quotes I use from the, in the book is that, you know, jihad is becoming as American as apple pie, he said at one point. And that seems like a completely absurd claim. But in fact, Americans have been drawn to this ideology, not in great numbers. But it's actually one of the things that may be surprising um, is there was an American citizen at the founding, at the founding meeting of Al-Qaeda in 1988. Um, who had, uh, he studied engineering in Kansas City, and he took notes at the first meeting of Al-Qaeda which took place in Peshawar, Pakistan, in August of 1988. So Americans have been part of this for a long time. And in fact, one of the, one of the interesting things about writing a book is, is when you, some people, the reviewers are smarter than the, 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 I mean, one of the reviewers was smarter about what I was writing than, the, <laughs> than myself. I mean, and I obviously thought about it for a long time. But one of the, point, one of the points the LA Times reviewer made by the book is that how Americanized the jihad has become. In a way, it's a form of American soft power. Uh, and um, you know, people like Anwar al-Awlaki have had a big impact on sort of jihadism around the world uh, through his lectures, through his ability to speak in English, through his ability to recruit people to his cause. OK, well, that's one person, though. Yeah. Right? But do you really think that, that American, the American version or American exports to jihad or have, have been influential in global uh, jihadist terrorism? I mean, strangely, yes. I mean, this is, again, that's sort of like a, so Anwar al I mean, if you talk to law enforcement, there isn't a case in the English-speaking world where his lectures don't show up, where Inspire Magazine, the magazine that he was you know, partially involved in, edited by an American citizen, a citizen, Samir Khan, who came from Charlotte, North Carolina, and really is the model for the ISIS magazine today, Dabiq. Uh, so, you know, they played an instrumental role in, in Al-Qaeda in Yemen's message. And in fact, for some people that are less well-known that I can mention, you know, uh, David Coleman Headley, who planned the Mumbai attacks in, 19, in 1998, which killed 166 people. Those attacks would not have happened without Chicago, Chicago and David Coleman Headley. Um, and um, we've had other examples of people who've taken leadership roles in Al-Qaeda Central who are American citizens. Um, a, a guy called um, Ali Mohammed was Al Qaeda's main military trainer in the early 90s and late and, and mid 90s. He uh, he was an American citizen. He uh, in fact he worked for the U.S. military. He was a special he was a sergeant at the Special Warfare Center in North Carolina. So he was actually teaching special forces officers. Um, and um, there are you know, a number of uh, Omar Hamami, of course, who, from Daphne, Alabama, who rose to become a leader of Al Shabaab. Al Qaeda's affiliate in Somalia, and the list goes on and on. I'm not saying, oh, but I mean, it's a, it's a kind of unexpected that these people would rise to become leaders of either Al Qaeda or Al Qaeda affiliates. Especially because it's counter the Al Qaeda or Al Qaeda affiliate narrative, which is 
Americans who they are, what American culture is about. It seems weird. And, 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 yeah. and until you've pointed it out, it isn't really uh, something that others have weighed in on. Well, the other, the other thing that's interesting is, you know, the American, Americans invented the internet, obviously, so it's probably rightful that, I mean, you think about, I mean, there's two to several different things you say about that. One is, it was Americans who then turned jihad into accessible language in English on the internet, Samir Khan and Raul Laki. Um, and a long time ago, I was met a, a jihadi, a Kashmiri jihadi, and he was kind of like doing the usual lecture about the perfidiousness of the United States. And this was before 9-11, and I pointed to his fax machine and all this stuff, which you know, at the time, fax machines were cutting-edge technology. And he I said, well, you know, look at, what, look at how you're communicating. It's all from America. And he said, well, you know, we accept this technology, but we still you know, hate the West. Um, and so, of course, I, you know, there's a paradox with ISIS, which is it's highly dependent on social media for its recruitment, which is a fundamentally American invention. Uh, and yet, I'm sure the irony of that is probably not something they appreciate. I'm sure. <laughs> I don't think they do irony. No, I think that, <laughs> I don't want to categorize. We don't saying, want to make aspersions yeah, on ISIS. We but. don't. We, well, we might. We might want to say a few things. Um, turning then to the, the individual cases that you deal with, and you just mentioned a couple of them, but there are a number of cases that nobody's really gone into in the kind of detail you have, at least not for public consumption. Um, Zachary Chesser being an example, Carlos Bledsoe being another example. Can you talk a little bit about the cases that really, you, there are 330 cases. You decided to focus on a handful of them, really, in, in yeah. some kind of depth. Why? I agree about Chesser, and the, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm extremely glad that you focused on him. Can you talk a little bit about who they are and whether or not they rise to the level of somebody you would consider uh, a terrorist endangering Americans or others? Well, you know, obviously when you write a book, you have to pick your targets. And if you make a film, and Greg Barker, who directed the film Homegrown, which is based on this book and will be, or not based on it, Greg sort of adapted parts of the book, but he did his own film. Greg... Um, you know, has done this amazing film, Homegrown, that will be airing on HBO on Monday night, uh, which has some similar kind of themes to, to the book. Uh, but in a film, you really have to pick your targets. I mean, you've got 90 minutes. In a book, even though you've got 100,000 words, you still have to pick your targets. And how do you pick your targets? You pick your targets by, um, are the, you know, what is their significance to the larger picture? And can, do you have any, anything particularly interesting to say about them? I mean, kind of, what level of access do you have? I mean, I... We wrote, I, I and my research team, we wrote letters to a lot of people, you know, hoping that they would talk to us or people in prison. And, you know, people, there were a lot of people in prison who, you know, the, the warden said they, that we're not, you know, you can't interview them. Understandably, a lot of family members don't want to necessarily relive the whole experience of their kid, you know, being wrapped up in sort of a jihadi terrorism case and that. I mean, so, so, you know, you mentioned Carl Bledsoe and Zachary Chester. They're both emblematic of certain things, and I was able to get quite a lot of access to some to aspects. So Carlos Bledsoe is a case that's not particularly well remembered, but he uh, was an African-American, grew up in Memphis from a middle-class family. Uh, he converted to Islam. His parents, by the way, were ba both, are both Baptists, and it was quite perplexing for them to have a son who suddenly was a fundamentalist Muslim. Uh, they were both, one of the mother in particular was sort of, a very fundamentalist version of, of, of that. They went to church twice, the, twice on Sunday because they were so religious. And so he converted to Islam. This was a big shock to the family. Then he went to Yemen. He kind of radicalized further. 
He came back, and to cut a long story short, he killed an American soldier at, in a, at a recruiting station in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, and it was really kind of the beginning that you kind of you begin to see this influence of Yemen coming in. So that, so you know, his family spoke to me, and there is a pretty a lot. You know, it's from a repertorial point of view, it's terrible when somebody takes a plea deal uh, too early because there's no trial. There's no trial. I mean, right. Karen's written her own amazing book about the Justice Department, which is going to come out. May 24th, and I mean, we, you know, the trial is great because it produce, you know, people are cross-examined, that it produces a lot of evidence. Uh, in Carlos Bledsoe's case, he took a plea deal, but, the, a lot, but you know, his trial had gone on for a bit. So there was a big court record, which was helpful, and then I also spoke to his father and his sister at quite some length. And so I was able to build up a picture of him. And then with Zachary Chester, Jack, Zachary Chester, you may recall, there was this episode of South Park in which the Prophet Muhammad was sort of portrayed. Uh, but in a bear suit, um, because like, cause it was, so you didn't show the Prophet Muhammad, but he was in a bear suit. So Zachary Chester is this brilliant kid from Northern Virginia, IQ of 148. He was sort of a Civil War buff when he was nine or 10. He converted to Islam, and uh, he became one of the most important sort of ideologues in the English-speaking world on the internet, uh, associated with a group called Revolution Muslim, who seemed to be, I, I remember when the first Revolution Muslim first came up, and NYPD and yeah. Others were concerned about them, and I, you know, they seem to be kind of idiots, basically, in a relatively small, relatively small group. But Zach Chesler, um, you know, he, we had the First Amendment in this country, so you can say, you know, Holocaust denial is a crime in Germany. Uh, the reason there was a debate in Parliament about Donald Trump uh, in the British Parliament, about perhaps excluding him, is that um, incitement to racial hatred is a crime in, in England. Well, none of those are, those are not crimes in the United States. But what is a crime is knowingly inciting violence to somebody who might actually go ahead and kill somebody. And so what Zachary Chesso said about the, the makers of South Park, uh, Matt Parker and Trey Stone, he published their address where they lived in Colorado. He, he suggested that the you know, action should be taken. He showed a picture of Van Gogh, the Dutch filmmaker who was stabbed to death because of his film about the Prophet Muhammad uh, in 2004. So, that, that was enough for the, the FBI to get very interested. I was able to speak to his mother, who was interestingly enough a very law and order prosecutor for the DC government. And I was also able to, he sent me a 100 page letter from, uh, he's now in the Supermax in Florence, Colorado, uh, which is a, a fate I would not wish on anyone, 23 hours in solitary confinement. He kind of went through the Fed. He, he is completely unrepentant. At his sentencing hearing, he said, you know, I had some bad ideas. He is not, at his sentencing hearing, he sort of said, well, these, are, these were bad ideas, and I shouldn't have done that. But uh, he's completely unrepentant. And he's a true believer. And, but his story was emblematic of kind of the way that the internet, you know, the, the, the kind of internet jihad and the way that you can radicalize. He never met, interestingly, this group, Revolution Muslim, he only met one member once. That's, so they never, it was completely a sort of virtual, it was a virtual community. You know, there's a Benedict Anderson about the idea of an imagined community. Well, this was a virtual community, an imagined community, and you're in an echo chamber of people who precisely share your views. And you can, what's, what's new in a sense is, before you had to go to a radical mosque and meet people, like-minded people, or you might have to go overseas. What's new is you can just meet thousands of people who exactly share your very radical militant views. Um, and you know, you suddenly you're not part of, there's a wonderful phrase that I use in the book which was coined by Gabriel Wyman, who's an Israeli counterterrorism uh, specialist. 
And he talks, you know, we think about lone wolves, but he, he said, it's actually, we should think about virtual packs because these lone wolves are actually part of a very large group of people suddenly, even though they're not part of a formal organization. Right, which makes the law enforcement challenge a lot harder because you're not dealing with people going to a mosque, people meeting in a certain place, not that that was so well handled. Yeah. But I want to talk, you talk about law enforcement extremely deftly in this book, I would say better than anybody who's written about it, which is to call them out on some of their weaknesses, but at the same time to understand the changing and evolving challenges that they face. On the other hand, you are pretty hard on law enforcement in, in several instances. Maybe that's a road, you know, they should have seen this guy, they should have. Can you just talk about your general assessment of what you think the FBI, the NYPD, and law enforcement in general, how would you assess what they've done? Well, I mean, the, there've been no significant terrorist, when I say significant terrorist attacks, I mean, there's been no Paris-style attack since 9-11. There's been no 9-11-style attack. <clears throat> so, I mean, if the, I mean, I think that sort of speaks for itself. I mean, the, it's easy to criticize the kind of overkill aspects of certain things that the NYPD did or that the FBI has done. One of the chapters in the book is about a, uh, a schizophrenic bipolar kid called Matthew Lanaza, who was entrapped by the FBI. And they knew he was schizophrenic and bipolar. And he was basically somebody just desperate for a friend and who had, who was you know, basically almost like a child uh, and you know, could barely feed himself. And they entrapped him. And he's gone away for 15 years. He took a plea deal because if he didn't take a plea, took a plea deal, he was looking at you know, 30 years. Um, and I think that anybody in this audience who read that chapter would say, well, yeah, as a legal matter, entrapment would have been very high. Karen has tracked this very carefully. I mean, there's been no case of, even when it looks like entrapment to us, you, as a legal matter, it's almost impossible to argue it's entrapment because the FBI is very careful to say, do you really want to go through with this? Mm -hmm. And they ask that question two or three times, and that the answer is yes, entrapment is a de legal defense. But we can kind of feel when it feels like, wow, but for an FBI informant, this person would not be in prison. He, he should have been in a group home with mental you know, somebody looking after him. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so it's easy to kind of, you know, you can certainly point to these oversteps. On the other hand, you know, 45 Americans have been killed by jihadi terrorists since 9-11. And if we'd had this conversation in 2002 and you predicted that 15 years from now, in the next decade and a half, only 15, uh, 45 Americans would be killed by jihadi terrorists, in 2002, that would have seemed like an absurd and overly optimistic claim, but that's really the case. So the problem has been managed. Yeah. And it's been managed because of many of the things that have happened. I mean, some of them, one, one interesting thing is the most exotic counterterrorism measures, the NSA list, harvesting all your phone data for five years, have been the least fruitful. I mean, the things that really work are suspicious activity reports, family members saying something, community members saying something, Undercover offers, inf undercover cover offers, informants—all the things that work in any kind of law enforcement situation. What doesn't work is the NYPD, you know, and its sort of mass surveillance of places where Muslim ga Muslims gather in New York. According to you know one of the senior NYPD officers who was asked in a civil suit, uh, "Did this yield any leads?" He said, "No." So it turns out, and we know, and the NSA yielded. The NSA phone data yielded one case of one person sending $8,500 to Shabab in Somalia. Now, okay, that's not something we'd encourage, but if, that, if the entire 
if you get all of America's phone data for five years and the government has all of it and you only have this one case, it just like, it's completely, it doesn't make any sense. Right, I mean, you use the phrase the rabbit hole of American paranoia, right? Or you, the, the rabbit hole that we kind of went down. Yeah. Um, do you think we're going down it at an accelerated pace? Do you think that it's... Well, fear is a very dominant part of our sort of, I mean, we're walking around with this, you know, the brain that worked very well for the environment 20,000 years ago in, in the forest or the jungle. And, you know, fear is a very dominant part of that. But that doesn't mean we should, you know, and it's easy to say, well, we should behave more rationally, but we don't. Um, and so the fact that one, you know, eight out of 10 Americans believe that it's quite likely or somewhat likely that there'll be a major terrorist attack that will kill them or members of their family, I mean, that is a fundamentally totally irrational belief. And yet is fairly strongly held because of the Metro jet crash in the Metro jet plane being brought down and then Paris and then San Bernardino. And if you look at the present presidential election, 24% of Republicans think that terrorism is the most important issue in the election and 9% of Democrats. And one of the reasons that Ted Cruz and Donald Trump, I think, are doing well is they have produ produced some highly simplistic answers to the problem, uh, both of which would be, wouldn't work. One of, one of which is carpet bombing ISIS in Syria. ISIS is living in major cities, so you'd have tens of thousands of casualties. And the other one is blanning Muslim immigration. But one of the big takeaways of the book is this is an American problem. It's not an immigrant problem or a refugee problem. The people who are doing the, every lethal attack in the United States since 9-11 has been conducted by an American citizen or an, or an, or an American resident, legal permanent resident. Many of whom are converts. Many of the, the 330 cases yeah, are converts, Yeah, quite a few, right? are, quite a few are, are converts. converts. Uh, but, but yeah, but so it's not like banning all Muslim immigration wouldn't, wouldn't solve the problem. And in fact, of course, alienating the Muslim community uh, who are the people who are potentially the most helpful to kind of deal with this uh, isn't smart at all. Um, and if you, you know, leaving aside the law enforcement question that you raised, one of the people I profile in the book is a guy called Imam Majid who runs the third largest mosque in the United States. And he, he has personally persuaded five people not to join ISIS. That's really good for them because joining ISIS is incredibly dangerous if you get to Syria, lots of people getting killed. And uh, if you do go down that route, the FBI finds out you're going to spend 15 years in prison uh, just for a material support case. So that's the most effective way we can deal with the problem. Let's talk a little bit about ISIS in the yeah. United States. I mean, we, if you want, we can talk about ISIS abroad. But pertinent to this book, I think we should talk about ISIS here and who mm. they are. Um, and you just sort of laid out a whole, you know, they're American citizens or permanent residents. They're, they're, um, can you talk a little bit about what they are in terms of age, motivation, Psychology. Well, you know, one of the I begin the book with the, the Khan family, in, uh, who are uh, 19, 17, 16 year old. They they were they lived in they live in Bolingbrook, which is a suburb of Chicago. They're as American as anybody else, uh, and they believe that ISIS is creating an Islamic utopia here on here on Earth. But how old are they? They're 19, 17, and 16. So Hamza Khan is the oldest, and he's you know we can use his name publicly because. He's not a minor. The other two were minors at the time. And I think they, they generally believed, um, yeah. they, they, they thought they were joining something, this, uh, a perfect society. Um, and uh, <laughs> They know, grew up in a, in a religious household. Yeah, they grew up. I mean, the other thing about it is that they made their decision to go and join ISIS a month after Jim Foley was executed by ISIS, which was the most widely followed news story in the United States for five years. There is polling on this question, like which story did you, 94% of Americans had heard about this event. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it seems very hard for us to conceive of somebody 
thinking I'm joining an Islamic utopia when everybody knows that they're, they're, they're beheading American citizens. But the fact is, it's, these are kids. One of the things, one of the, one of the, I mean, one of the policy takeaways is it, when a 19-year-old thinks they're joining a utopian group like ISIS, and there's no violence in his background or her background, and there's no claim by the government that they were planning an act of violence, I think it, the, the government should think about something other than just, we're going to put you in prison for 15 years. Because what's the incentive for a family member to come forward when, when they know that if they can, you know, the, the, if the FBI gets involved, it's a very serious problem uh, for their kid. I mean, they're, they're in a very difficult situation. I mean, if they don't, if their kid goes to Syria, that could be even worse because, uh, uh, you know, basically half the foreign fighters who are going to Syria end up getting killed, the males. Right. You could say that the FBI keeping them here, however they keep them here, is saving their lives. They are lives. doing them a favor. I mean, it's not the kind of favor you'd wish on, you know, most people. But they are, I mean, going to Syria is incredibly dangerous. But, you know, just to... to talk about the Khan family a little bit because they are so articulate about, you know, they left letters, the, the families cooperated, so they're talking a lot about what motivated them, how they were thinking, what they thought they were going to get over there. What do you think is going to happen actually with the prosecution of, of the, the oldest brother and the other two? What do you, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to get into that in too much detail, but I, you know from your own work, Karen, that the likelihood of you uh, being acquitted in a federal trial is, uh, that involves terrorism is basically close to zero. Yeah, it's, it's close. And so, I mean, if you're a defense attorney and you have one of these cases, I mean, it would be almost professional malfeasance not to advise your client to take a plea deal. Uh, the only, I mean, in my, you know, there was a case called the Liberty 7 case in Miami where they had to put the trial on three times. Yeah. And it was basically a bunch of Haitian guys Haitian-American guy smoking a great deal of weed, sitting around and sort of BSing about maybe attacking the Sears Tower in Chicago. Yeah. And an informant was put in the... I mean, so two of those guys were acquitted. But, I mean, that, the case was so... I mean, they never even visited Chicago to case the supposed target of that. I mean, they, they were just sitting around. They were actually trying to get money from the informant. Anyway, I mean, there are other cases like this uh, where, you know, an informant in the Newburgh 4 case offered... Basically, these homeless guys, you know, two hundred fifty thousand dollars, a BMW, a holiday in the Caribbean, you know, you know, they, you know, and really entrapped them. So, um, the reason I asked yeah. the, the question is that I think that that law enforcement, and I think this, you can sort of. I, I really like the way you handle law enforcement in this book and how you very subtly tell this story. And I think there is a different understanding of the ISIS cases than there are with the Al-Qaeda cases. And you're seeing it play out. And I think you might see it play out with the Khan case. And that's why I'm mentioning it. Whether it's because they claim that these kids are young and they have psychological problems that need to be mitigating circumstances. But if you look at the sentences now, the sentences that have been hand out, handed out in these ISIS cases are actually much more lenient. And I think maybe it has to do with the age. Mm. And the ISIS cases tend to be younger than the Al-Qaeda cases. So I just wondered if you saw ISIS really as a different kind of movement than Al-Qaeda was in the past, which was very much about, um, it, yes, they taught, and you and I had this conversation, that the first conversation we ever had at dinner, do you remember it? Okay, I'll tell you what it was, okay? So we're sitting at a We've had a lot of conversations, no, no, Karen. This I, was our I, first <laughs> conversation. And we, for some reason, there were a bunch of us, and we were sitting at dinner at the Soho House, and, and I don't know how we got into it. We're like, Peter, 
what do you think bin Laden and al-Qaeda really want? And so we, and Peter said, you said, well, let's just go around the table and ask. So I went first, and I'm like, they're just destructive. This is just a nihilistic, you know, bunch of whatever. And we went around the table. Other people said their things. And then, and then you said, OK, now I'm going to tell you. This is serious, the caliphate. They want to build a caliphate. And all these other things that you people are talking about is about the caliphate, which is why I started by asking you with what bin Ladenism is. Now I see, you know, I, I want to ask you the same question about ISIS. ISIS in the United States, do you see it as its own version of the ISIS abroad? Um, by which I mean that if you look at ISIS abroad, the brutality, the cruelty, the barbarism that's been associated with ISIS time after time, you see in the United States these kids who, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but there is a sense of just acting out, not really totally. knowing what they're doing. And so I'm just wondering. I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with more. I mean, okay. in the 1970s, these, group, these kids would have maybe tried to join the Weather Underground or the Black yeah. Panthers or some other kind of revolutionary organization promising a utopia through violence. They're not, um, and they're idealistic, um, and, you know, they're, and they're very small, and they're very small numbers, really, compared to Europe. You know, I mean, if you look at the Paris attacks, these guys had all gone through, been in prison, they, they went to Syria, they really trained, they killed a lot of people. I mean, we're dealing with something that's very, very different. Um, and uh, I mean, we saw in Garland, Texas, the people inspired by ISIS or San Bernardino are certainly capable of something. But it, you know, the, our, our problem is orders of magnitude less. This is the fundamental paradox, which is Americans are very frightened about this, and yet our problem is really very minor. Now, in Paris or in France or in Belgium or choose your European country, it, it's potentially a much larger problem. Uh, people do not seem to be kind of as freaked out about it. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it, but you know, the, the counter argument here is that everything that the reason we're fearful, fearful about it is everything is filter, filtered through one of the hinge events of American history, which was 9 11. And so we sort of process any kind of plot or attack with that in mind. Okay. Um, there's a lot of controversy right now over what to do about ISIS in the United States. Just yeah. these individuals, these 80 cases that have been uh, kids that have been indicted, and what to do about them. And what the White House is proposing is a counter-narrative strategy, a counter-violent extremist strategy, which is the CVE strategy, which is extremely controversial, which is um, many uh, Muslim communities and Muslim individuals are reacting too strongly in terms of how it's targeting Muslim communities. But one piece of it is particularly interesting, which is the counter-narrative. Like, do you, th do you think that this approach of a counter-narrative done either through social media or whatever it is... What's the counter-narrative? Um, that's what, what I want What, what is the actual I, story? I mean, that, that reminds me that's about... That's what I'm asking you. When, um, <laughs> do you remember, who was uh, George W. Bush's um, advisor, um, who was the female... Uh, who, Grant Townsend? No, no, no. Who, she went around the Middle East saying, look, you know, America's great. Karen Hughes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like, Hughes. people, you know. Yes, that, I remember this. What is the kind of, if the Karen Hughes America is great, I mean, it's just, I mean, I, I, I'm actually very suspicious of the, the idea of a counter narrative because I, I'm not, well, certainly the US government's ability to kind of, I mean, first of all, there's, there's a kiss of death problem with the United States government, which is it's not seen as a fair player. Mm -hmm. Secondarily, there's a lack of knowledge problem because, that very few people in the US government really have any particular knowledge about Islam in any meaningful way, uh, relatively speaking. I mean, there are, but we're not talking about large numbers. Mm -hmm. 
And, um, and, and thirdly, that's not really the problem. The problem, stopping radicalization is like trying to stop the tide. We, it, it's a kind of futile exercise. What we need to do is something much more specific. Stop people joining these groups. Now, because instead of talking about one and a half billion people, we're talking about, you know, you know in this country, dozens. Mm -hmm. and, in, and, in, and in Europe, you know, choose your European country, hundreds. What we want to do is just stop people getting recruited by these groups. Mm -hmm. that, and that's much more doable. And the way to do that is to um, emphasize defectors, because defectors say, hey, this is not an Islamic utopia. Stop people at the airport joining. Get the Turks to stop uh, having a very, let's say, fair attitude about foreign fighters going through their country, which we have done. And the Turks have actually done a much better job of ISIS's own propaganda now illustrates that they're very concerned about the way the Turks are reacting to recruitment and recruits coming through their country. So <coughs> to me, the, it's great to talk about a counter narrative, but what is the narrative? Uh, it, it just seems more doable to say, let's just focus on the recruitment issue. And this goes back to Imam Majid, who I mentioned. I mean, Imam Majid could, I'm just, I mean, he could say a lot of things about ISIS, but the, the thing that was important was that he found these five kids who were planning to go, and he said, this is the reason this is not Islamic and that ISIS is not what you think it is. Mm -hmm. And that, that's a much more discreet and doable, and at the end of the day, that's what, uh, what's what we want for a national security. We just don't want people joining these groups. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so um, one of the things I love about this book is it's just brave in a, in a lot of ways that other writers on this topic um, don't want to go there. And sometimes it's when you talk about law enforcement and sometimes you talk about who these individuals are. But you're just willing to get in there. Um, and one of the things you say is, look, we're going to say there is a relationship between the Islamic religion and Islamic fundamentalist violence. And you, yeah. you talk about that. Can you just talk well, about that I a mean, little bit? The settler movement in the Palestinian territories has got something to do with certain Jewish fundamentalist beliefs about the... Uh, sacred nature of Judea and Samaria. So that has something to do with Jewish beliefs. And uh, similarly, the Crusades had something to do with Christian beliefs about the sanctity of Jerusalem. And so the idea that ISIS has got nothing to do with this, I mean, you can say that it is a highly cherry-picked version of Islam, and that I think there's very little dispute about that. But um, the Quran has sufficient ammunition. The Quran is not a book, it's, a, it's the word of God, and there are there are chapter, there are verses in the Quran uh, that certainly can be cherry picked, and Bin Laden has done it to advocate for violence. And if you're an Islamic scholar, you can argue, well, there are, you know, you, if you take that, you know, look at that verse. But then, what is it? What does the Quran say two verses later or a chapter later? So, I mean, you can you, you can have it. But the point is, this is the reason that the answer is within the Islamic community is there is an Islamic solution to this. That's the only solution. Right. You know. But that has something to do with Islam. You can't have it both ways and say this has got nothing to do with Islam, but you know, the people who can really answer it are, uh, are Islamic scholars. So, um, you know, and if you had, you know, if you're interviewing bin Laden and you asked him what's this about, he would say it's about the defense of Islam. And he would have a, a pretty sophisticated theological explanation of all that. Um, so, there's a good reason why President Obama doesn't talk about Islam, and I understand. I mean, look, the guy is a smart guy. He knows this has got something to do with Islam. But he's not saying that because he doesn't want it to appear the U.S. government is at war with Islam. 
and that's appropriate. By the way, you know, interesting. He visited was it? He visited a mosque today. Something of course, something he's been secretly being being burning to do for the last several years, because of course he is. But but so I think you know I understand why the I understand why the president is being. Can we do something about the feedback, or is this um, the um, he he. He is, I think, rightly not talking about it in the, uh, as something to do with Islam because I think it just complicates, needlessly complicates, uh, if the gov U.S. government is saying that all the time. But that's really the, the the biggest takeaway from this book is is this. I think this is why you should all read this book. It's that this is the story from John Walker Lynn till now, and you sometimes go, "This is what it is. This is the whole universe of it. It's not more. It's not you know a million more people that we're fantasizing about. It's not less. This is what it looks like. These are the individuals. These are the names. This is how they lived. This is who tried to stop them. These are the different uh, law enforcement theories that collided with one another. Peter, of course, says they were all right in their different ways. Right? The 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 Hoffman. Sageman yeah. thing, which I think is, is exactly right. But this is the universe of it. And so what I like about this book is sort of the reality quotient of it. You know, here you have it. And it's been a while, I mean, couldn't you have written this like 10 years ago? It would have like saved us a lot of, a lot of scariness. But anyway. It's been well, 10 years ago, it wasn't really, yeah, what's really unexpected is why Americans continue to be attracted, a small number, 330 cases, why they continue to be attracted a decade and a half after 9-11 to these groups. And I mean, that's a puzzle. And the puzzle, my book doesn't completely well, is it answer a puzzle? that. That's a puzzle, yeah. I mean, I think it's a form of a puzzle because why you know, ISIS, it's a public, public knowledge that ISIS wants to kill Americans and has killed Americans, and like, why would you join these groups? I mean, it, Right, to us, we might not want to join them, but I think they're, like, go back to the con kids, they're very articulate about it. They want to belong. Yeah. They feel that it's, it's sort of sanctifying, yeah. that, it, that it gives them a purpose and a vision and a, and a, and a, and a mission. Sure. Um, so, I mean, it's... The, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't disagree with any of that. But, I guess uh, the question is, are, could, could there be other missions? And you know, it's not just talking people out of joining ISIS. It's also finding other mechanisms for connecting to the society in which we all live that somehow seems to be missing in these cases. No? Or do I have that wrong? Yeah, no, I think that, that's true. I mean, look, I mean, it, in France, it's clear. I mean, one of the interesting things about France is, you know, Less than ten percent of the Muslim population, less than ten percent of the population is Muslim. Seventy percent of the prison population is Muslim. So you're looking at, I mean, when you talk about sort of an alienated group that has reason to be angry with French society, French Muslims by and large do have a reason, and American Muslims really don't. I mean, American Muslims are, better, are as educated as the average American. They have same average incomes. They don't live in ghettos. Everything I can, everything I've just said, you can reverse. Uh, for pretty much every European country where they, you know, you're two and a half times less likely to be called back for a job interview with a Muslim name in France than you are if you have a Christian name, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, we, don't, we don't have the same level of problem. I mean, the problem, I mean, there's a fundamental tension in this book, which again was pointed out by the LA Times review who read the book. I mean, in a sense, this is not a big problem. I mean, it's not a big problem. It just isn't. Yet at the same time, we're very worried about it. And so my, my book, and I'm glad that you've said it, Karen, I mean, is the attempt to sort of try and lay out what, what is the scale of the problem. It's something, it's persistent, it's low level, it won't go away, it will be managed. I mean, the other thing, of course, we live, no politician is going to say the following thing, even though 
many people in the national security sort of establishment know that we've managed and contained this problem. I mean, the facts speak for themselves. But if you know the political costs in this country are saying, hey, we've managed and contained this problem, and then you have an attack that, where even four people are killed in a country like Libya, and it's a, somewhat attributable to Al-Qaeda. I mean, that, that was yeah. enormously politically costly to Hillary Clinton and continues arguably to be so. And so we just, politicians, I mean, President Obama has tried to, you know, to try and sort of set the level, you know, you know, you know he's, a, he's no longer seeking office and he's trying to make speech, say speeches that, you know, basically say, look, we have this relatively low level problem in this country with homegrown militants. We have these overseas groups which can attack, you know, American interests to some degree. And that is the scale of the problem. But Americans aren't absorbing this. I'm sure everybody in this room is, right? <laughs> but Americans are very frightened about this. And why, you know, again, I mean, I'm not a psychologist. There's, there's a whole academic literature about um, kind of lay perceptions of risk and expert perceptions of risk. And lay perceptions of risk are, are you know, fundamentally highly emotional. Uh, but, I mean, anybody in this room, when they leave here, is much more likely, you know, 100 times more likely to be killed by a bus uh, than they are to be killed, you know, in the, any, you know, going forward by, by terrorists. Um, and you're 5,000 times more likely to be killed by an American, you know, with a gun than you are to be killed by a jihadi terrorist in this country. And so, you know, we should be very frightened about gun violence and we should be worried, you know, about climate change. Um, and yet, we're, we're kind of fixated on this other issue. Um, and it goes back to 9-11, I guess, is the only possible psychological explanation that this was such a transformational event in American history. Or that it's something that you, or and, it's something that individuals feel they can, can be managed, whereas climate change, uh-oh, you know, that's, that really is beyond. Well, I mean, actually, in this, in this I, I, um, I kind of looked into the peer-reviewed literature on people's perception of risk, and people are, are much more fearful about things they can't control. So terrorism is something they can't control. So you know, even though they should be worried about getting their car, because they're controlling the car, they're right. less concerned. Right. Um, anyway, so we are human. We're yeah. humans. <laughs> right. But um, you know, we've done a pretty good job. We, the United States, have done a pretty good job of managing this problem, and leaving aside the question of overreach by whether it's NSA or NYPD or FBI, and you can point to cases. I mean, generally speaking. Yeah. Whether it was the Bush or the Obama administration, we, um, we, they have you know, taken this problem. They've, they've made it pretty hard to carry off the terrorist can you, attack. Can you foresee the day where a national politician, or even no. not national, uh, will get can't. up? You can't. Okay. I mean, yeah, President Obama has, a second-term president has certainly tried. Yeah. A first-term president is not going to say it because the political cost of even being 0.01% you know, wrong are unacceptably high. Well, this is something that I wish your book could change. Well, I don't think he's going to. I know. <laughs> then you know what, Peter? You need to write another book. <laughs> um, it's time for your questions. So I hope it's a great question. No pressure. Yeah, no, it doesn't. <laughs> well, it's kind of twofold. And I'm not a conspiracy theory person, um, but there are a few things that I see on the various media. One is the Clearing Project has talked about uh, uh, terrorist training camps dispersed throughout the states. And uh, after 9-11, we had a conversation with a guy that knows a lot of Arabic people in New York, and he was saying that there were sleeper cells here, and they're just waiting. And so my question is, 
the 500,000 people the Department of Homeland Security hasn't um, been able to keep track of because they came over with visas and they don't know where they are, is there a reason why we're not trying to track these people? And could these people be a potential threat in light of what we're talking about? So that's okay. my question. Well, the CEPA cells are so asleep they appear to be dead because they haven't done anything. I mean, we have not, you know, I mean, in a sense, the San Bernardino couple were a sleeper cell. Although, you know, the classic, you know, what is a sleeper cell? A sleeper cell is a group that have been trained outside the United States and sent to, you know, to act, you know, many years later. There's been no cases of that, really. We, we there was a big concern about it after 9-11. There, there was a case of uh, a guy called Ayman Farris, who was an Ohio truck driver, who was an Al-Qaeda recruit. He was living in this country. He had a fairly... Uh, underdeveloped plan to bring down the Brooklyn Bridge with a gas torch. Now, a Pakistani-looking guy clambering over the Brooklyn Bridge with a gas torch in the years after 9-11 would have attracted a lot of attention, and bringing down the Brooklyn Bridge with a gas torch is like trying to blow up the Empire State Building with a large supply of firecrackers. But he, uh, yes, he was a sort of sleeper cell, but he didn't, he didn't act. I mean, he, didn't, he, he, he was arrested. So there was a big concern about sleeper cells in the years after 9-11 partly because these guys had been in the country. Uh, but, you know, this, you know, it, by a lot of law enforcement effort, um, these sleeper sellers were, were not found. And, you know, it's impossible to prove negatives. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in falsifiable statements. So you've made two falsifiable statements, which are, one, the terror training group, you know, the terrorist training camps in this country. Well. There's simply no evidence for that. I mean, there's just, and then two, there are a lot of sleeper cells. Similarly, I mean, if what have they been doing for the last decade and a half if they exist? I mean, are they just, are they, just they keep waiting to? Um, just to follow up on that, yeah. one of the takeaways of your book has to do with lone wolves. Yeah. So maybe you should just mention that before we close, because <clears throat> it follows. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, but, I mean, the problem we have managed the problem. There aren't Al-Qaeda sleeper cells. There are not terrorist training camps in the United States. The only example of something that came close was a, a camp in Oregon uh, hmm. in 1999 that people who were sort of associated with Al-Qaeda were planning to set up. But I, let, let me zoom out a bit further. So there was a, a book by, uh, a famous book about, essentially about American paranoia. Uh, by, was it Douglas Hofstadter, uh, Richard Hofstadter. And he published it, you know, he, he was a professional historian, and he looked back over the, the history of the United States, and he found waves of paranoia about various things. Now, some of these waves are going to seem inexplicable to this audience, because, of course, we are, uh, you know, we've moved on. But the first wave was directed at Freemasons, who were basically responsible for some worldwide conspiracy and they were plotting against the United States and they were going to just take over our culture. And of course, that was nonsensical. The second big wave was directed at Catholics. And of course, it was a big issue for JFK. Was he, you know, did he owe more allegiance to Rome than to the United States? Um, and that turned out to be nonsensical as well. Catholics were not secretly, secretly conspiring to bring down this country. Another wave was, of course, directed at Jews. And they, of course, were not conspiring to bring down this country either. And what we're seeing today is another wave of paranoia directed at Muslims. 
somehow are seeking to undermine our society. And this is all part of the, this is as American as apple pie, this kind of paranoia. But of course, it is wrong, and it is false, and it is misleading. Uh. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good note to end on. Let me just say that, in addition to everything else wonderful about this book, at the very end, there is a list of court documents. Actually, it's one of the things I'm most upset about in terms of people who talk about terrorism. You should read these documents. You'd be shocked at what you would learn about what terrorism isn't here, including about Camp Bly, you know, the terrorist training camp that they tried to set up and failed to, to set up um, in Portland, Oregon. So um, I just, in addition to reading the book, you might want to just Google those documents and read through them, and then you'll you know, be part of our little little uh, discussion group here. So um, I want to say a few things about Peter before I let you go. First, you should definitely get this book because it is a delight to read from beginning to end, and there's people in it. It's not just ideas. It's not, it's not pontificating. It's just thoughtful presentation of something very human with a lot of different angles and a lot of complexity. But the note I really want to end on is there's only one Peter Bergen. He's been in this the whole time. He interviewed bin Laden. He's been thinking about al-Qaeda. He understands the threat. He doesn't take it flippantly. And he's telling us that this is something we can pay attention to, we can manage, but that we really have react, overreacted in ways we need to understand. And that's really what the contribution of this book is. And so I just want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.